Welcome to the Prosperity Perspective by DML, a conversation about how successful business owners invest their hard-earned money to preserve their wealth and what they might have done differently in hindsight. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Today, we are joined by Noah Rosenfarb and excited for him to share a little bit about his journey and his perspective with us today. So, Noah, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience to get us started? Sure. Happy to do so. I'm a third-generation CPA. I'm the founder of Freedom Family Office, and we help entrepreneurs earn predictable income, create their ideal life, and build their legacy. Did you know you always wanted to be a CPA or was uh, the family calling just so strong that it didn't matter wherever the interests were elsewhere that CPA was the route you were going to go? Well, I'm one of four boys. I'm the only one that became a CPA. I am the youngest. Um, And I loved entrepreneurs since I was a little kid. And I always thought of entrepreneurs as America's true heroes. So while other kids were, you know, thinking about G.I. Joe and He-Man, uh, I was thinking about Bill Gates, you know, and uh, I remember in 86, uh, he became, uh, I believe, a billionaire. And, uh, you know, I was thinking this is like the best thing ever. Here's this young guy who invented this amazing productivity tool. And my best friend was like a, a do-gooder type. You know, we're only 10 years old. And uh, he says, Bill Gates is terrible. You know, he hasn't done anything for anybody. I said, he created 10,000 jobs and all these people have you know Microsoft in their office. And, you know, I always admired entrepreneurs. So I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought the best way to get exposed to entrepreneurship and exposed to more heroes was by being a CPA and going into their businesses and providing them with advice. Hmm. Did you have any sort of like entrepreneurial starts or journeys in that, you know, high school, college? Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. Day? I was hustling since I'm a little kid. You know, I started selling candy uh, when I was eight or nine. And then that morphed into, you know, the snow shoveling and that kind of thing. But I think I was the highest paid babysitter in the state of New Jersey in 1993 because I was paid $20 an hour uh, to babysit 10 hours a week from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. And uh, I'd go there, ride my bike there in the rain, sleet and snow to babysit for a four-year-old and a a nine-month-old while mom left early for her nursing job. And uh, I'm sorry, dad left early for his roofing job and mom would come home at 8 a.m. after an overnight shift as a nurse. Um, And then I'd ride my bike to school. So, yeah, I I, I was always hustling. Busy. Um, what was the first business that you kind of got into, uh, that you sunk your teeth into, you know, sold what, uh, I'm assuming yeah, it was around the CPA side. No. So the first one that I had invested in and then eventually sold was a pizzeria. Uh, it, I went to college at Rutgers university, which is the, like the state university of New Jersey. And, uh, my brother who was four years older than me had failed out of college worked in a pizza shop in Arizona, and then decided he wanted to buy a pizzeria. He actually found one that was only a half a mile from the college fraternity house that I was moving into. So I took some of my savings to contribute to be a minority owner in the pizzeria. Uh, We grew that pizza shop, we doubled the revenues. I started a catering division for fraternities and sororities, sold uh, 100,000 meals to uh, young Greek students that were wanting breakfast, lunch, and dinner delivered to their house. Um, 
And then eventually, uh, when I graduated, unfortunately, my brother had ulcerative colitis and had to have his colon removed. And, and so we had to kind of sell the business after I had left uh, the operations and he couldn't run it anymore. But it was, it was a fun ride, but I'm glad I got my uh, restaurant experience out of the way early in my life because I wouldn't want to do it again. Uh, that's, uh, my wife is a chef. And the one thing I've told her is we're, we will never own a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> happy to have you. Uh, be an executive chef in a restaurant, but we will not own it. Uh, yeah. It's uh, I've just heard lots of challenging stories, but um, so as you were moving through, right, obviously successful venture as you're going through college started more ventures coming out of college. Once you hit that point of, you know, profitability that was coming in, um, what was your strategic strategic framework of where to apply it and how to use it? Right? Did you pour it back into the business? Did you go buy the fancy boat, the nice house? Like, what were those things that were top of mind? And kind of how did you think strategically about uh, how to leverage your money? So I wanted to be a millionaire when I was 30. That was the goal that I had set when I was a teenager. And so when my wife and I got out of college, we met in college um, when we were teenagers. We got married a couple of years out of college. Uh, but we bought our first home. We bought a two-family house. We rented half and we lived in half, thinking that our tenants would pay for where we live, which was a great strategy. Um, and we knew that we'd want her to be home to raise our children that we'd eventually have. So we tried saving 100% of her salary as soon as we could. And then once we got to saving 100% of her salary, you know, we were looking at how can we save a large percentage of my salary. And most of what we wanted to do was buy uh, you know, two family and three family and four family houses in our neighborhood and rent them out with the thought that if we could accumulate 20 units and pay them off over 30 years, you know, we'd have whatever the amount would be of passive income and we could retire. And it was a, it was a well thought out plan, but it was not actually the best plan. And so I ended up pivoting from that plan. Do you, uh, are those still in the portfolio or those have been uh, nope. sold off as a total pivot? Okay. What, all sold what, off. what inspired the pivot and what did you pivot to? Uh, so I, I got exposed to a concept called return on time. And what I started to evaluate was not just how much money did I put down on the building and what was my annual cash on cash returns, but if I started to add $75 an hour for the amount of time that I was spending, you know, managing that property, what was my actual return? And, and once I started doing that, it was pretty terrible. So I realized that I wasn't getting a good return on time, even though I was getting a good return on investment. So I pivoted in and basically started to think, well, if my strength isn't in managing these properties directly, how could I leverage my strengths, which was really in the relationship management business? And at the time, I, I had shifted from being a CPA in a CPA firm that I was helping to grow, which eventually was sold by my father. I started a family office. And so I started aggregating capital from my clients and we'd chip in to buy larger buildings that someone else would run. And that really enhanced my return on time and my cash on cash returns ended up being about the same or better. How did you get exposed to all these different concepts and philosophies, right? So it sounds like uh, dad was a CPA, sounds like he might've been business owner himself, um, but, you know, return on time and shifting from, you know, single family into multifamily syndicate deals, family office, kind of how did you 
expose yourself to, you know, get the learning and the um, perspective of different opportunities that then, you know, helped shape your career. So I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I've always loved reading books. I think I read Think and Grow Rich when I was 12. You know, when, when Rich Dad, Poor Dad came out, I was just about to graduate college and that became one of my favorite books. Uh, but, you know, I was always trying to learn about money. I knew I always wanted to be wealthy. And, and then when I joined my father's CPA firm, I got exposed to all of our traditional accounting firm clients and I got to see how they made money and what they did with it. And then my my expertise really honed in in the area of divorce. So I helped over a thousand families through the divorce process, testifying as an expert witness on how much money people made and what they spent it on and how much their businesses were worth. And by looking at all those families and seeing how they treated their money, I got exposed to you know great opportunities of, of both you know what to do right and what to do wrong. Broad assumption, but I would imagine a majority of the clients then were the divorcees and you were doing the forensic accounting into the businesses uh, to understand true value to get them maximum return. And then that parlayed into kind of helping them manage their money after trust had been established. Correct. Yeah. So I, when I was a testifying expert witness, you know, our clients were fairly balanced between the titled spouse and the non-titled spouse, meaning the person that usually owned the business or controlled the money and the person that didn't. But I found an opportunity in the marketplace to form what I think was the first family office for affluent divorced women. And so I, I left the accounting industry. Uh, my dad wanted to sell the firm, the accounting firm. I didn't want to buy it. So I helped him prepare it for sale to a third party. And then I exited to create this family office for divorced women called Freedom Divorce Advisors. And I built that business for a number of years before selling it to a large registered investment advisory firm. Fascinating uh, in terms of what that that journey and kind of how you've gotten there. Um, as you, would you recommend starting at, you know, the two family houses for, you know, entrepreneurs who are just coming into it? Or would you say, based on your experience, that's something that can be skipped and go straight into larger syndicate deals? So I, in hindsight, I wish I would have skipped it. Um, when I work with a lot of entrepreneurs now, I do encourage them to skip it with one exception. And that exception is, first, if you have a strong passion about real estate investing and you want to be a real estate investor as a vocation, then don't let somebody else do it. Do it yourself. Uh, but the corollary with that is the tax treatment. So it, our, our U.S. tax code has a lot of great benefits around owning real estate. Uh, and when you're a passive investor in, let's say, a project that I put together, you'll get some great tax benefits. But if you put together your own projects and you're a real estate professional, all of the losses that are generated from real estate, and, and, and there's a good reason that there's losses, even though you might still be making money, all of those losses can offset your other income that you might be earning from your business interests. So if you have the capacity and desire to follow that strategy, I would say it's a great one. If you don't have that strong desire and you want to focus on growing your wealth by growing the value of your own company, you, you're probably better served entrusting your capital with people that are spending all day working on real estate. So that's essentially the qualified real estate uh, investor designation, I imagine. I'm probably butchering the words, but yeah, the, just a real estate professional. 
Um, and, and so the IRS lets you, at, because we have a self-reporting tax system, you get to tell the IRS whether you're a real estate professional or not. If they want you to substantiate it, they have a five-pronged test. Uh, the two biggest hurdles for those tests are that you, it, real estate must be more than anything else that you do, and it must be a minimum of 750 hours. So if you meet those two tests plus you know, some of the other tests that are out there, then you could substantiate to the IRS that I really am a real estate professional. It doesn't require you to have a real estate license. It doesn't require you to have necessarily a business that's involved in real estate, but you have to be spending that time doing real estate activities. What would it take for someone who's doing the single family to jump to starting to put together multifamily deals and offer those and try to syndicate those out to others? Is that an easy jump? It seems like that's the jump that you made. Did you start by doing the projects yourself or did you start by participating as a syndicate investor with others and then kind of doing it from there? I would say that, so making that transition is really around raising money from other people. So if you're irrespective of what asset class you're going to invest in, what size of a deal you're going to do, you know, I have people I've been exposed to that, you know, they they flipped a house on their own and now they want to flip three houses at once. And so they need to raise some money, whether you're doing it on a small scale or like me right now, I'm uh, raising $14 million to buy 278 units in Homewood, Alabama. The, the securities laws are the same. And so what I'd encourage you to do is get an understanding of what are the laws that apply to fundraising and make sure you're compliant. And that to me is the the thing that most people miss when they get started is they don't start in a compliant way. And unfortunately, if you get yourself into trouble early on, you basically cross out this ability to raise capital in the future because the SEC will prevent you from ever doing it in a compliant way. And I assume the compliant way is through the 506 exemption? Uh, that's to accredited investors. That's traditionally where most people go is 506B or C. Uh, one allows you to market and uh, only accept accredited investors. That's the 506C rule. Those are the rules that we use. Uh, but it, prior, I used to use the 506B rules, which meant I couldn't advertise. I had to know every investor. But I was allowed to have 35 investors that weren't accredited in each individual deal. So as you built the portfolio, obviously, real estate has become a big part. Are there other elements uh, that have that you've seen or that have come up that have driven, whether it's cash flow, passive income, like uh, that strategy um, on your return on time? Kind of what are the I guess what are the top three investments or categories from your perspective to maximize return on time? Uh, so businesses, I think, for entrepreneurs is the number one way to maximize your return on time. And if you can't invest for a greater return in your own business than you can somewhere else, then it's probably an indication that you should be selling your company and take that capital and redeploy it somewhere else. So assuming you're you know, investing the vast majority of your time and effort and energy into your business, then it becomes, well, what should I be doing with the cash flow? that I'm generating that I'm not spending on my lifestyle. And, you know, I've always been more of an income oriented investor. 
So I do have a private debt fund that I started over 10 years ago, where again, I, I was investing in private debt with my own money, but then I went to my clients and said, hey, I've got this opportunity to finance this guy who's going to do a home flip. And you know, for we pay 80% of the costs and he'll pay 20 and he'll do all the labor and then we'll split the profits after we get back our money. And, and people say, oh, okay, that sounds like a good deal. I'll invest in that. Uh, so I've done a lot of private debt and I find that private debt can provide really good risk-adjusted returns. Um, some of that still is in the real estate sector. Uh, I, I continue to allocate a lot of my own capital to real estate because I like that asset class. Um, but the vast majority of the people I work with, you know, clients of my family office, and, and most of our clients are entrepreneurs with kind of the 10 to $100 million net worth. That's really the, the category of entrepreneur that we focus on. Many of them have the vast majority of their liquidity still in stock and bond portfolios. And, you know, I don't believe there's anything wrong with it. Although personally, I like to allocate most of my cash flow to real estate. I think the stock market and the bond market are there for you know a long track record there's liquidity there's comfort and uh and yet as a family office i think what makes us unique is that we do have the vast majority of our clients still allocating to real estate it just might not be the majority of their liquidity do you still operate the private debt in addition to the real estate or is that something yeah. that yeah no still still do the private debt and and we have uh alternative investments that we make, you know, whether it's uh, commodities or um, long short equities or private equity, or uh, right now, you know, some crypto related uh, long short trading strategies. So we, we have a diversified asset allocation, not only for our clients, but for my own family. Uh, although again, I tend to heavily weight my investments in my closely held businesses and in my real estate. So it sounds like the business model is running essentially money management for high net worth people. And then you've got different verticals. And some of those essentially are owned slash controlled by you guys in terms of real estate investment, private debt. Uh, I assuming you have advisors on the stocks and bond side. Um, how'd you get to formulating kind of that as the, the business proposition? Did it kind of happen organically over time or did, was that intentionally planned from the get go? No, it was uh, organic, really, as a result in some way due to COVID. So his prior to COVID, I basically had an outsourced family office team. So I've always kind of run my family office the, for my family. So it's what am I investing in? What are my needs? And then how do I essentially leverage the infrastructure across multiple families that want to you know, take, take advantage of what I've built? When COVID hit, I saw an opportunity to, instead of outsourcing everything in individual parts and pieces, to bring it all in-house, um, in, in large part because I felt that there would be an opportunity to uh, attract new family office clients over the internet. And they wouldn't need to have dinner with me. They wouldn't need to go to a ball game with me. They would be able to have confidence that our team has the capacity and capability that far exceeds the local, you know, offering in their local marketplace. So I, I built out that infrastructure over the last couple of years, um, re retooled and reformulated, and uh, and now essentially have a family office that, again, it's really modeled on what do I need for myself, 
And then how can we bring that to more entrepreneurs? So I just expanded our infrastructure so we could serve more families. It sounds like a pivot from a marketing customer kind of acquisition standpoint during COVID and then an expansion of the base to allow to, to take on more clientele as essentially to, to build and multiply what you guys are doing. Yeah, I would say for the seven years prior to COVID, I was working with the same 30 families and I wasn't really, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm very happy. I was happy then. I'm happy now, but I didn't need more money uh, as, as to put it frankly. And so with COVID, I just saw an opportunity um, because I had been spending more of my time donating my time to causes that I care about. And I wasn't feeling the benefits of investing that time. I wasn't getting the, the meaning uh, of the, uh, and, and expressing my higher purpose the way that I thought I could if I actually decided, you know what, instead of giving my time to fighting hunger and providing education for needy kids, why don't I spend my time focused on entrepreneurs who is really the people that I've always admired and loved and cared about? Why don't I dedicate my time to them? And then I could take that money and give it away to those causes. And that way my, I'll be better aligned with my higher purpose. And I think I'll, I'll have a bigger impact on the world. So COVID kind of gave me the opportunity to, to retool and restructure to do that. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset of that higher purpose, right? Because uh, some of the things you mentioned were very monetary targets, right? Millionaire by 30, knew we wanted to be wealthy, but it sounds like there's this underlying higher purpose that was either there or amplified at a certain point. What did that journey kind of look like for you? Uh, and and how did it evolve? evolution, right? And so I think um, I, I've come to learn for me, and, and I've seen it with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with, that you can have financial freedom and you could have time freedom, but you could still be a miserable millionaire. And, and most of the work that I've done over the last couple of decades has been working with entrepreneurs that are selling their companies. And so many of them, after a sale, report a, a newfound depression. Uh, they have divorces that they didn't anticipate prior to selling their business. And when you look at the data around what's happening, um, my own conclusion is that they've lost the meaning and purpose in their life. And as a result, even though they have financial freedom and time freedom, without the meaning, they kind of lose their edge, they lose their identity. And so I, I've, I've identified with that on myself. You know, I've had enough financial success where I had time freedom and not that I was miserable, but again, I, there was this draw of like, how am I going to contribute to the world in the most impactful way? And giving my time wasn't really getting me there. And so uh, I kind of retooled my schedule. And, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm here speaking with you is because I found that by sharing my story, by inspiring other entrepreneurs to live their best life, to do what I call become rich beyond money, that that's really what's going to lead you to have a life that's meaningful and, and a life that's full. That's awesome. It's a, it's a journey that I've been up and down with personally as well, right? It's the, uh, it feels so good to give time and uh, be involved, but the impact of that is so small relative to where my skill sets are, right? Uh, more aligned with you and uh, I can make a lot of money and I can work with entrepreneurs and I can help them be better. Uh, I can do that and then give more and that, that just, it, it compounds right what that uh, impact is uh, in the giving which i think is is huge right uh 
people take it for granted, I think, and people who aren't there don't understand it. Uh, but uh, once you're there and you understand the impact, it, it's massive. Yeah. <clears throat> what's um, what's one piece of advice you'd give entrepreneurs who are reaching that point of profitability and trying to be able to become wealthy, get to a point where they can amplify their impact and their higher purpose? Uh, how do they get there fastest? Uh, what should they start with? Um, I think it's it's simpler than most people think because where I see the biggest mistake made is on the expense side. I think so many entrepreneurs fall into the trap of seeing their cash flow increase and then right away increasing their lifestyle. And there may always be a gap between how much they make and how much they spend, but that gap never widens sufficiently so that they can save enough money so that they can create passive income to support their lifestyle unless they sell their business. And and waiting and relying on the sale of your company to provide for the rest of your life is is a bit of a fool's errand. Uh, My own experience is that you need to have at least 20% of your desired lifestyle expenses coming in from passive sources before you sell your business. And the reason I say 20% isn't because there's some magic math to it. It's an indication that you've spent enough time investing in different asset classes to figure out what you'd like and to make some mistakes while you still have cash flow. That's great because everyone's going to be different, right? It's not going to be real estate for everyone or crypto for everyone. It's got to be something that they're passionate, knowledgeable, right? Can earn consistent returns on. Um, and it takes time. Uh, I think to Gladwell's, uh, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, right? Like uh, it takes time to get to that point, but uh, appreciate the thoughts and perspective today, Noah. What's the best way for the listeners to be able to connect back with you? Uh, so I have a bunch of resources that could be helpful and, and perhaps you could link to them in the show notes. Uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's probably a great place. My name's Noah Rosenfarb. Uh, but if you want some resources, if you're interested in tax strategies, you could go to freedomtaxstrategy.com and download 23 Overlooked Tax Strategies for Entrepreneurs. Uh, if you're curious how my family has been investing for infinite returns in real estate, you could go to talkaboutre.com, download a copy of my book, uh, and also get a chance to be on our list to hear about the new investments that we're making. Uh, if you're thinking about selling your business, of course, you could go to Amazon and buy my book, Exit Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. But if you want a quick freebie, you could go to decidedtosell.com, where you'll get a, a short ebook about things you should be thinking about around that as well. Awesome, Noah. I really appreciate the time and the insights today and uh, you sharing with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on The Prosperity Perspective. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please head over to theprosperityperspective.com where you can hear from other successful business owners on their approach to investments. On our website, you'll be able to learn more about how DML Capital currently helps other business owners like yourself diversify their investments and grow their wealth. Take our short quiz to see if you're ready to take the next steps toward your financial success.